0: Welcome everyone. This is episode 26 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Jennifer Shahade. Jennifer has a fascinating background. She was two-time US Open women's chess champion and uh, she's a longtime poker player. She uh, streams chess on Twitch and she has what might be the best poker podcast currently. It's The Grid where she ultimately will interview 120. 69 poker players, about 169 different poker hands. How did I do?
1: Oh, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, yeah, I, I'm i really excited to be on your show. And, um, you know, at some point, I'm going to definitely have to ask you which candidates you are going to consider for helping me click off one of those grid, grid cells. Um, it has to be something really bad, Brandon, because I know you have played a lot of shorthanded and like got in deep in tournaments. So you can, you can probably click off something like nine, three or nine, two soft suit, right?
0: Uh I, I ten seven is the hand that comes most cl- cleanly to mind because that's probably the most popular TV hand that I ever played. Um, so, so I would go with 10, seven off the bat, but I'm sure I could come up with, with a bunch of others.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I have to look that up.
0: 10-7 is a lot of players' favorite hand. So that one might that one might come up. But yeah, you you can put me down for 10-7 suited if no one has that yet.
1: Ah, 10-7 suited. Okay. Yes. Yeah, actually,
0: okay.
1: I don't think so. I think somebody picked the offsuit version already. So, you know, to to explain the the grid, I'm trying to get one person to talk about every single combination of poker hands. Um, so 169. And what I do is I interview them for my podcast, but then I also try to like get famous players to reserve their hands, sometimes like months in advance, just so that I know like, okay, you know, Eric Seidel wants this hand, I'm definitely not giving it to anybody else, right? So I just kind of like, it's like reserving tables at a restaurant, right? I have a little spreadsheet where I nice. just say, this one is for this person.
0: Yeah, you're still at the easy stages of the project in that you're you're not you're not down to the, the last few.
1: Yeah, that is that's going to be a little hard. That's where I'm going to have to rely on you know um, online poker players who've played every single poker hand many many times and can just kind of like go through their database and try to find one that's actually interesting. You know, even one of my very first guests is a heads up specialist, uh, Kevin Rabbishow, and. Yeah, he said that he did that. He just looked at his database for like weekends and found one that had like some juice to it. So um, that, that'll that be um, really integral towards the later stages.
0: What I love about it is that, okay, the last guest on your podcast was my sort of longtime poker coach, Michael Acevedo, and um, you have the, the theory – right? But then you have departures from theory that might come from contextual circumstances. Maybe it's a read or maybe it's, you know, the guy's on his last bullet or something unusual about the situation that can have you make often substantial departures from what might be theoretically reasonable. And uh, that's why I love having people talk about about their their favorite hands.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Michael Acevedo, uh, you, you, I think I might have, Acevedo is how you pronounce it? Acevedo?
0: I hope so, because I've known him I for think. a long time. I, I don't know. Okay, I, Michael I,
1: Acevedo, yeah, he's great. And I knew that you guys had um, some kind of relationship because you had this like really wonderful quote about his book that's right on the uh, back cover um, about how it's like the best poker book ever. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to Michael. And I think that he kind of um, really encapsulates what the whole project of The Grid is about because he's obviously a great theoretician, he's a mathematician or a physicist. um, So he, he obviously has a math background, but then he's also this very visual person, right? Where he's interested in like infographics and making things look beautiful so that you can actually internalize all this information so that kind of combination of math and, and art, I think is exactly what I was going for in the grid that, to show the math of poker in a way where you could also see that it's also this like pastiche of stories, right?
0: He's, he's so brilliant. He, uh, he goes through these obsessive periods where he just will be all in on poker theory for months at a time. And he it's in some of those periods that he, that he wrote the book and he has, I'm sure he's told you he has some intense software projects that he, that he gets involved in. And uh, yeah, he's one of the most intense poker theory people that I have ever come across. And he's, he's uh, such a great mind. I've never actually seen him play. So I don't know how it translates into actual play. We talk poker hands all the time, but like I've never actually played poker with him or observed him uh, play poker. I, I, I would imagine that if you took his mind and his knowledge and then put it in like uh uh Patrick Antonius's body and and temperament like that would be the perfect thing I think maybe his 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 temperament is uh not as perfect for the poker game as his like mind is you know like his his analytics are perfect and the and and maybe he's excitable in the, at the table. I I don't know. I've never seen I've never seen his his play, um, but he he uh was responsible for a couple steps forward in poker for me because, um, he was a he was a really really great coach.
1: And you still work with him on poker?
0: I worked with him yeah uh, for a couple of years where he would he would do lessons and. We, we had a project together where we were, um, I was sort of sponsoring him in his endeavor to, um, have a next generation solver. We didn't know at the time that, that many other people were doing the same thing. And so it didn't really work out, but I was, I was sponsoring his endeavor to, to basically have a training software, um, that was, that was next generation.
1: So what do you mean many other people are doing the same thing? You're saying like you're trying to create um, something with like more back and forth feedback where you get like feedback like DTO if you get something wrong or do you mean like a software that's more visually oriented than Pyo or I don't know visually oriented more like um, more uh, easier like a lower learning curve like an easier point of entry because right now I think that the main software on the market, whether it's like Simple PostLab or Pryo, um, it, it takes like a decent chunk of time, unless you're getting like private lessons to understand the software and actually be able to use it effectively. Um, you know, that might be depending on how much work you've done with similar um, softwares in the past, that could be anywhere from like a week to like many, many weeks, right?
0: Yeah, so my my experience on the coaching side is is that um, as Michael was explaining in your in his podcast with you, the problem with monker solver solutions is that um, if you're studying any individual solution, there's so many possible solutions that one might study. It can it can be hard to generalize to your to your play. It can be hard to learn from one uh, individual solution. Um, what, what I have found works best is to, to focus on general concepts. And someone like Michael is good at teaching general concepts because he's seen, um, he's seen more outputs from say a solver than, than anyone probably, or, um, so he can explain general concepts and then, um, as you know, it can be uh, time intensive to get solutions from Monker Solver, say. So it's more time efficient for me if I'm able to say, Michael, I'm really interested in uh, small blind on, on big blind situations from, I want to see uh, 20 big blinds, 30 big blinds, all the way up to 100 big blinds. I, I want that interaction. I want to see the whole solution set pre-flop and, um, and then he goes away, does the work. And then, uh, we talk about the solutions, why the solutions are the solutions, what part of the solutions he views as robust, robust, what part are sensitive, um, that kind of thing. Um, so, so his, um, what he was working on and this is a little bit dated now um he was working on a um, a database of munker solutions in the same way that say when when max silver's snapshot came out whatever it was at this point say 7 8 years ago i can't even remember how long ago it was wow, but that was that's crazy, yeah. that that was that was um that was interesting just to have, just to pose the simple question, like what's best response to best response. If your only options are all in or fold for these situations, um, that's an interesting problem. And when, when, uh, snapshot came out, the the poker market obviously gobbled it up because it was valuable information. And, um, people still reference it every once in a while, eight years later. So, um, he would. Michael would not like this simplification that I'm that I'm trying to give. But he, but he was. Um, he wanted a training software that would allow you to consult a compendium of munker solver solutions that had already been done. So if you had a question like, "Okay, I'm playing six max, uh, big anti poker, anti equal to the big blinds," and everyone's a hundred big blinds deep i want to know exactly what the ranges should look like um i'm particularly interested in say button small blind big blind interaction like you don't have to go to munker solver and do that work and get get it like you just have to you just have to plug that in and then the solutions come up or or you're interested in um or, or you you change the ante around and uh or change the starting stacks instead of instead of the snapshot okay your only solutions are all in our fold now you have a generalized solution from munker solver here's your here's your four bet and call range here's your here's your uh flat range whatever he, he's giving you everything um and uh that was what he was doing pre-flop. And then he had visions for what it would look like post-flop as he, he, he had a post-flop engine as well. And with the post-flop stuff, the idea was that you could characterize certain board types and then have uh, solutions, c Munker solutions for uh, certain board types. It's roughly similar to what Galfon did with his recent uh, vision trainer on run at once for Omaha, but but the vision was to, to do something that looks like that for, for Hold'em.
1: Oh, great. Well, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it's just crazy the amount of acceleration there's been and interest in game theory and these types of training tools. I think that actually when I came up with the idea for the grid, which was like, Um, The grid has been around since May of last year, and I came up with the idea a a little bit before that. So a year and a half ago, it was already really different. Like, I think the last year and a half has changed things a lot. I still feel like there was a lot of resistance, like people who weren't really interested in studying um, solvers because they thought that they were like boring and hard um, and that they would also sway people in the wrong direction to be too robotic. I, I think that that rhetoric was still really popular like even two years ago. and even though even though like there's a, absolutely like some slivers and truth in that, it's me it's amazing how quickly like we've moved on from that and people who say things like that now kind of like qualify it a lot more because they understand that it's like it's the future of like studying poker. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it um it definitely I think it has something to do with the pandemic too because people who are just too busy to like sit down and hire a coach and learn, you know, game theory, I think in the last six months, people who fit that category have actually been like, okay, if I'm not going to download Pyo now and use it, <laughs> it's, it's like, if you're not going to use this time to read Proust, um, <laughs> you're probably never going to, right? Because this is an unprecedented time of like huge blocks of introvert time that we have, right? In the pandemic for most people. So uh, that that I think has kind of accelerated the speed towards like consensus that using solvers is like the way to get better at poker, even if you want to play exploitatively, which is like really different than it was two years ago.
0: And I am not uh, a chess player. I went through really just one phase in my life when I was into chess, which is uh I did the summer program for high school students at at Harvard and like all the kids in the dorm were really into it. And I, I got into it for the summer and then I was into it for like two years after that. And then kind of gave it up. Um, but I see some parallels in that with chess and I'm, I'm going to butcher this. So you let me know where I go wrong, but With chess, you had the uh, kind of defining moment with deep blue. And then then you had the ongoing realization that computers were just going to be better than humans. And then you had an evolution where the humans then started learning from the chess engines because they realized that the chess engines were better. And so you could see how they would they would play in certain spots and then try to learn from that. Um, With poker, it's kind of similar in that in poker, people have slowly realized that the computers can play better. Um, And now the, uh, the humans try to learn from computers in different spots. And the challenge is that the computer cannot tell you why the solution is the solution you have to try to guess based on based on knowledge of game theory and general themes and
1: not and, yet not yet that's that's the next step when they can like speak to us about why certain things are true and as for chess, yeah, i feel like you you know you hit it pretty well that like deep blue was this like monumental thing in chess history and it obviously made all the front front page stories um but Actually, there's a new chapter, which as somebody who loves games and math, but also loves, you know, art and creativity, I find actually to be incredibly significant. And I think the culture is sleeping on it a little bit. I think it's even more significant than people give it credit for. Um, DeepMind recently did um, some work with former world champion Vladimir Kramnik. DeepMind is the the company that created like Alpha Zero and then also AlphaGo, a great documentary that showed the... AI that became like the best Go player in the world about 10 or 15 years earlier than people thought uh, AI would beat the best Go player. If you haven't seen it, oh my God, it's so
0: I saw it, yeah, it was great.
1: Great movie if any of your listeners haven't seen it. But anyway, this company also did chess. And I think the reason they took on chess was not to show that an AI could beat the best chess player in the world, because obviously that already happened, you know, so many years prior but they wanted to see if this AI would create the best traditional chess programs in the world. Like for those of you who play chess in the audience, something like Stockfish that you can just get if you have a chess.com account or a lead chess account, like you can just press a button after your game, obviously not during your game, but after your game, if you like want to see where you went wrong and where you went right, it'll show you like this traditional Stockfish engine that like analyzes chess games, which would be more similar to the ones in the past that have beaten Kramnik and Garry in matches, so uh, this AI just demolished the the one that Deep that um, Alpha that Deep Mind created um, just demolished the traditional engines. And basically, it was like a self-taught AI. It just played itself over and over, so it accepts any rule set, and then it plays itself um, to you know super grand mastery within a number of days, which is of course you know. So many uh, astronomical iterations for it, and uh, so basically they did this a year ago, and then they came up with a new project this year, which didn't get as much attention, but I think is just as fascinating. So they twisted some of the rules of chess. So they took the rule set and they tweaked it, and they used nine different tweaks and then they had the computer play itself or the AI, um, you know, it's a better term here, uh, and. The reason they were doing this was now beyond how do we make somebody play chess better, but can we use AI to show how maybe there's actually a better version of chess? Like, you know, going back in history 500 years ago when we decided that the best rules of chess are the ones that we have now, um, which include making the queen way more powerful than it was when people played chess a thousand years ago. So th- now, the, now the question DeepMind is asking is, well, what if 500 years ago the pawns could move sideways? You know, would that have been a better game or a worse game? And how can you even define better game? Well, it sounds difficult to do, but actually there are ways to do it. They um, define like a good game as one that has like a lot of possible options early in the game that aren't horrible, um, a, a decent win rate, meaning that it's not all going to be draws, right? Um, so there's, like different, there's different ways that you can determine whether a game is good, right? And kind of predict whether people are gonna play it a lot. Um, but I thought that this was, had fascinating poker applications too, that like if you go beyond seeing AI as something that can make you play better poker and potentially suggest ways to make poker better, that's like a real like mind shift, right? Like you're now thinking completely differently about how to use this.
0: Yeah, and in particular because poker tournaments are so popular yeah um poker tournaments are a strange translation of actual poker and um fortunately for no limit hold'em the translation is somewhat reasonable between say normal cash game poker and and tournament poker as we all know it's a little unfortunate that that tournament poker does devolve into like all in and call at the end and the the what should be the most exciting phase, you just it's all all in and call and that sort of thing. That's kind of unfortunate, but but it does translate reasonably well to the tournament format. Um, whereas a game like I don't know, um, um Omaha with no Annie translates very poorly to tournaments, I would say. Um, and um, stud translates poorly into tournaments because it's just all about what happens when the action evolves. You 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 could you could have a variant, say of of hold'em that that translated better to to tournaments, possibly.
1: Yeah, good point. And I think like you need basically you need um, a couple of different things. You need like uh, there to be playability at various stack depths. And that's something that No Limit Hold'em has. Like, even if you're bored, like, at least it's playable, right? Like, you can still play a 10 big blind stack with, like, you know, lots of different interesting strategic components. And then you also want, like, there to be, like, a good um, balance between skill and luck. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of thing, like, if for some reason you wanted to try to come up with a game or tweak a game so that it worked really well with tournaments, I do think, like, yeah, that's the kind of problem that maybe AI could help you with because you could get all these, like, models right Um, and you know just see like how it plays out without having to actually do it physically
0: yeah I mean so short deck poker is an example of a tweak to no limit Mm -hmm. that is actually um, in some ways a better cash game because the strategy of poker is all about having the blinds and annies to fight over You, you have this intricate fight about the blinds and annies and the problem with say no limit hold'em without an Annie structurally is that it's it's kind of too tight of a game structurally the the uh, the penalties for playing too tight are not severe enough just from an inch from an interest standpoint so structurally um my preference in cash games has always been to impose a big annie because it's just it's far the strategies are far more interesting when there's when there's more to fight over. Um, and then uh, short deck just takes that to the next level where you have this huge Annie structure. And now there's, there's a real fight on for these, these blinds and Annie's. And if you're not willing to, to involve yourself in the fight, you're just going to, you're just going to lose. You're just going to bleed out from Annie's. Um, so it's a very good cash game, but it's actually a terrible tournament game because the, the as the Annies accelerate they're just too big relative to stack sizes and it becomes reasonable to just go in with like mechanically with with certain hands and it's just it's just a very bad tournament game so you need there's there's some perfect middle ground where you have a, a strategically intricate game that that then translates well into into tournaments now in the chess world you um, because we set up this call like a week ago I followed you on Instagram I was going through all your uh your chess videos it's it's a fascinating world of chess twitch streaming which I know nothing about but I was like watching and a real lurker because I don't know anything about what's going on so I'm just sort of following the the games and the commentary and stuff and and uh I caught one with Magnus Carlsen who I guess is the best Chess player. I, I know him as the best chess player in the world. I don't know if he's the current world champion, but he's yeah. he's got the documentaries about him and he's, he's 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 seems to be the number one guy. Yes,
1: um, he is. He is still the number one guy in, in the world and the world
0: champion, yes. The main topics of conversation seem to be a his favorite alternative forms of chess. So he mentioned things like no castle chess and what you said the sideward pawn moves. So he was talking about the relative merits of those alternative rules. And then um, I guess a lot of the conversation was, there must've been some obscure opening, like almost an insultingly bad obscure uh, opening that someone had played in a Blitz tournament. And um, it was, I, I take it from the commentary that it was bad slash obscure such that no one would play it or study it. But Somehow he knew all the variations of it from however he knew it. I don't know if, did he know it from memory or was he like on his computer, like doing it as you guys were talking? It was.
1: I think it's like a, it's like a troll opening. So basically, yeah, you're trying to do it to like, you know, kind of like have some fun, but also like, it's like kind of like, in a way you're making fun because you're like, I can play this move. It's so bad and still beat you. Um, But, you know, it's also all in good fun. It's not, like, mean-spirited. It's like opening, you know, five deuce off under the gun in poker game and then, like, winning the hand with a big bluff and then turning over this, like, ridiculous combo. It would be somewhat similar to that. Uh, But I I avoided using seven deuce only because I know there's a lot of sometimes bonus prizes for that. So that one might actually have some equity. But um, in this case... He made basically the the worst move in in chess that you could possibly make. So um, uh, one of his, uh, not Magnus, but one of the other great players in the event, who's actually the most popular chess streamer, Hikaru Nakamura. So he did this because he knew his Twitch audience would call it funny. It's called the Bong Cloud opening, the Bong Cloud. So, you know, his Twitch audience is mostly like, you know, very, very young, and they just think it's, like, the most hilarious thing ever for him to play, like, this move. And at this point in the tournament, he'd already clinched third. So no matter how well he did, Nakamura, he wasn't going to get first. And no matter how badly he did, he wasn't going to drop the form. So it was, like, a cool time to just, like, have some fun. But, yes, then when we asked Magnus about it, it was hilarious because Magnus just knew all the variations, and he was like, yeah, this is the real best way to play the bomb cloud. And it, it, was, it was so funny. And I, I guess in a way it just shows that a world champion knows even the most ridiculous things because that's how much chess he studied. And if he gets into a situation where he wants to make fun of his opponent and play this move, guess what? As soon as he makes that move, he's gonna to try to crush you. And I think that's where you can kind of see the parallel with poker. So if somebody opens with, like, the six-deuce off or the three-deuce off or the seven-deuce off in a game where there's no bonus, yes, they've opened this ridiculous hand, fine. But as soon as that moment is over, they're going to try their very best to play well, right? So it's just this, like, initial, like, trip or handicap. And after that, they're all after you. And that uh, that was just really amusing to see Magnus, like, exhibit that.
0: So he's he's basically... Going through all those variations in his mm-hmm. in his head because it's a little confusing when you're watching the Twitch because there is that chessboard and it's like a graphic where you're 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 showing visually what he's saying.
1: Yeah, we want to show people visually because it would be hard for everybody to do a blindfold. Um, you know, of course he's capable of doing it blindfold, but possibly he's actually looking at the screen um, while he's getting interviewed because otherwise he wouldn't be able to catch when we like misheard him and didn't make the right right move. So, yeah, I, I think he's technically looking at the screen, but yeah, all the best players in the world are very capable of playing blindfold if they need to. Well,
0: I guess the part that it, that wasn't clear to the viewer is because, because he's also looking at a computer, um, you don't know whether he's like reading the s- solutions, but it oh, seems yeah. like you're saying that, that it's all in his head. He's oh, yeah yeah, of, yeah, 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 I got yeah, it.
1: definitely. He's not pulling out his chess-based files to show us the cloud theory. (laughs) No, 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 no way.
0: Got it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, this is, it's still a bit of a foreign world for me. So I have some questions.
1: I I did want to quickly ask you about the Harvard thing. You said you were at the Harvard High School Chess Club?
0: No, my first exposure to chess was, I I went to the summer program for high school students. Ah,
1: okay. Okay, got it. That makes
0: sense. random courses whatever like math courses or what have you and and um it happened that chess was really popular in the dorm Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that was my first introduction and at the time still somewhat chess is popular around harvard square and stuff but at the time it was really popular so i got into it that summer and then sort of stayed into it for a bit but then uh then then left it um I, I watched searching for Bobby Fischer with my son Bear the other day, and I have some hopes of getting my six year old into it. I have uh, well, I have a couple of chess books for kids around here somewhere, and I have a chess clock and a board. So we'll see. Right now, he's far more interested in the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, but we'll we'll, we'll try to get him into some chess.
1: Cool. Yeah, maybe you can try play. Um, what's the not play Magnus, but Magnus's Kingdom. Okay, that's kind of like Legends of Zelda, but with like a chess
0: theme. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He'll like it. I like it. He'll like it a lot. Based?
0: What's that? That's PC based.
1: Um, it's it's an it's like for an iPad. Oh, cool. I don't know about Android. I think you can probably get it for Android too. I didn't check.
0: Um. Okay. So on the grid, um, are you able? I know that maybe some of these people who are on your spreadsheet are not firmly committed. So you might not be able to highlight them, but who is your dream team for, for the grid? Like what is, what is the Durr hand for instance?
1: Oh yeah. Well, Dur. I didn't even think about getting him because he does so few interviews, but um, I, I feel like even Phil Ivey is more
0: likely than Durr. No, no, come on. Just save. Yeah, just, it. Just save Durr for last. He'll do it for sure. Okay.
1: Okay. Good to know. Good to know. I
0: Just pick no the pick the I hand. That. I would guess, Um, has King-Queen suited been done yet?
1: It has, yeah. But, you know, I might have some flexibility also. Like, I feel like if you were the one who, towards the end of the grid, I might, because we've had some weird things. Like, we've had somebody come in, tell them a hand from a dream. We've had okay. Michael tell us a hand from a training session that he didn't play. Okay. So, you know, we can tweak things if there's somebody who has a hand and it's already taken, but maybe the hand that they're representing or the person that they were playing had the, the other hand on the grid. Um, but, yeah, Durr um, and Phil Ivy would obviously be, like, Dream Gas, Eric Seidel.
0: You, you got to get uh, Doyle in there with the 10-deuce. Has the 10-deuce been yeah. done already?
1: No, I, I am saving that for Doyle. I think that's going to be difficult, but, you know, I I, ha- I do – I do. um, I think it's possible. I feel like that one's possible.
0: Yeah, you gotta do that. Like it's he's still. I think he's still quarantining. You gotta. You gotta get him on soon. And I was recently watching the uh, Bill Perkins pod. You guys, you guys were talking about chess props. Oh, and and chess props. You had a chess prop with or your your brother had a chess prop with her. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: That was that was what two thousand. Seven, Seven. yeah
1: yeah yeah long time ago yeah and uh, they played a fifty thousand dollar game with like work odds for um for Greg and he won um so that was a, a pretty famous chess game and then yeah I talked to Bill Perkins on our pod a little bit about um he, of course his book guy with zero and also about all of his different um you know poker activities and how he's now obsessed with chess
0: and you guys talked about a, a prop where he was going to have Magnus Carlsen play uh, Bilzerian and it was 10 minutes to 30 seconds or something.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: You exactly. found that one pretty laughable, but it is amazing how quickly people can play chess. Like I, it's, it's astonishing. So it could really like Magnus could play a game in 10 seconds. Cause you seem to laugh off the idea of 30 seconds. You were like, well, that's not going to be much of a game. That's like a drawing dead situation. But, but with, with, say, 10 seconds, you're getting down to as fast as humanly possible, right?
1: Like- yeah, yeah, 10 seconds would be close. I feel like, because, but, but listen, it's a prop bet, right? Like, if you have a prop bet, you want it to be, like, you know, 50-50 chance that either side will win. Obviously, if you're sharp, you go on one side or the other, right? Like, maybe 55. You don't want it to be 90-10. That's not much of a bet. Well, if you're betting on, if you're the if you're the star player, I guess you want it to be that way. But I feel like 10 seconds might be tough live, um that's the thing there's a big difference between playing live and online because you can make more moves you can do what we call pre-move online um i think i feel like 12 seconds would be like the right number
0: and and that is is the standard that when you say a 12 second game is the standard that you have a total of 12 seconds or you get like an extra second every time you move or something
1: oh no 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 then then you then you can uh then, you, then he'd win with one second, obviously. Okay. No, it's like 12 second period. But you can make more than one move um, per second. So think about it this way. It's more like you're betting that you can win in like 25 moves, you know.
0: The 30 second, it doesn't seem like it would be close. And you'd say that would not be close with Magnus versus any like, let's say, strong recreational player
1: exactly because then you're talking about like 60 moves like you don't think magnus carlson can beat you, beat you in 60 moves like even as even a like professional like not professional but even like some expert level players could lose you know that's 60 moves and his instincts are going to be really strong right so he doesn't need to think like why would he need to think he's just he's going to play 60 moves against you and if he can mate you or maybe six maybe you can make like 40 or 50 because some of them might be like long moves Like, moving the queen from one side of the board to the other, that might be hard to do in half a second. So, you know, say he plays, like, 50 moves. You're basically betting, like, can he beat me in 50 moves or can I kind of, like, stretch the game out so that it doesn't happen? And that's basically what you're betting on. Then then it seems a lot more reasonable. You can understand, like, okay. Like, he's not thinking. He's using his world championship chess instincts to just play the first thing on his mind, and that's going to be good enough.
0: So, who have you interviewed on the grid that shares the background with you that they came from from chess into poker? Now, I I, I listened to uh, Mike the Hat. Oh yeah, and yeah. I loved I loved that one. And I think Bill Chen had some chess background, right? Um, did Bill have some chess background?
1: Yeah, um, Bill Chen has. Well, Bill is a little different because he um, got more into chess recently. So I, I was coaching him for a little bit. Um, and that was maybe like seven years ago that he came to me for test lessons and he went from, you know, maybe I can't remember how low he was when he started, maybe 1700. He went from like a, a good amateur player to an expert, which is like a candidate master. Um, so he clearly played a little bit when he was young, but not much. And um, then I also had uh, Dan Smith on the podcast and Dan played a lot when he was a kid. And reached almost a level of master but then started playing poker so he never really got to the 2200 official level although in blitz he's pretty good so he, in blitz he's probably at that level um so yeah those those guys um and then peter spidler who's one of the best, best players in the world and certainly one of the most beloved peter spidler is this uh, incredible commentator who's you know from russia from saint petersburg but his English is like better than most Americans because he reads um, voraciously and he also loves to play poker and particularly PLO. Um, so yeah, th- that, was, uh, that was also a really, a really fun chess related episode. And it makes sense that I have a lot of chess players on the podcast, not only because um, it's, it's you know, my world, chess as well as poker, but also because in a way, it's a chess inspired podcast, right? It's a grid. Of, you know 13 by 13 of all possible poker hands and in chess we've been studying on that flat end grid on our computers for like many more years than you poker players have right so it's fun to see that come full square
0: those guys are the main the main ones that are that are uh chess to poker transitions with with bill being not not so much the chess guy
1: yeah, well, Bill is just, you know, all around genius, I think. I mean, he's also taken off Go and gotten really good at it. He's also really good at Bridge. Like, I think he's very exceptional in that he's in um, grown-up. I use the word grown-up now that I have a three-year-old. It's like <laughs> adult just seems so clinical now. But anyway, I, I use a... I think that Bill, Bill's mind is very special. You know, he's got this mind which is really good at imagination and imagery and visualization, and that equips him to get good at games, even though he's much, much older than the level um, you would usually need to be at to get mastery of games. So normally, in order to be like a 2200 level chess player, and he hasn't reached that level, but he was close. So if he put his mind to it, he certainly would. Um, you know, you would you would normally need to start much, much younger. Whereas he, Bill's 50 and he's able to do this, So I think that's inspiring. Although not everybody has that kind of mind, but it shows that if you approach it in the right way, you can achieve greatness in fields even when you're a lot older than, you know, people would think you can.
0: And Bill, as you know, um, he advanced poker by many many years when they published the mathematics of poker because that was that was such a seminal work i mean that that like advanced the game by leaps
1: absolutely i mean it's incredible you know uh the math of poker and just the way mathematician mathematicians minds work that he uh he's not like particularly great at arithmetic you know like that's not his specialty like if he's if he's like trying to like add up Because I I was very good friends with Bill um, a few years ago when we would like go to the World Series of Poker together or work on open face Chinese and chess of course I mean he just um, you know his it shows you that math is like much broader than you think it's like it's more about like imagination and coming up with like tools to solve big problems not like adding and multiplying and subtracting numbers quickly.
0: When was your podcast with Bill?
1: Um, it was right before lockdown, basically, because okay. that, that was one of the last ones I did in person. And, you know, before lockdown um, or, you know, shutdown or, you know, the pandemic really changed people's lifestyles. I know everybody's in a different stage right now who's listening. Um, I did a lot of my interviews in person. And there's certain types of people where it's like so much better to do it in person. Basically, people who are more introverted, it's really great to get them in person uh, because I think that they just open up a little bit more and you can kind of use body language and facial expressions to steer the conversation in a certain direction. So like, yeah, Bill Chen's a good example. Like I'm really glad that it was one of my favorite interviews and I'm really glad that I was able to do it in real life um, before this all happened.
0: You should, you should get Matt Harolinko on. um, He's, he's a fascinating guy and he, he has, he has some favorite limit hold him hands where he, I don't know if you're exclusive. I don't think you are exclusively. No, I'm not. Him. I'm not. Yeah. He has uh he has some favorite hands and Bill could hook you up.
1: Yeah. 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 No, I do know Matt as well. He's, he's great. And, um, he actually helped me with that episode because that's the funny thing. That's what I mean about Bill. Like, yeah, he's this genius, but it's like he's really good at some mental skills and then some he's not good at. And I think that's really important because, you know confidence really important not just for kids but also for grown-ups and um you know we're not all good at every type of mental scale like so that's okay that doesn't mean you're dumb or not capable and like for instance Bill's memory is not good and so he didn't remember what he had in the hand I wanted to interview him about against Bill Ivy, and like he just had no idea I was like what do you think you had I "I don't know like maybe I had this maybe I had that (laughs) so um I, uh, I asked Matt Harlenko and he, he not only remembered what Bill had, he knew what Phil Ivy had because um, apparently he had a conversation with Phil about it. So <laughs> I, I just think that's funny that it's like the hand is like 10 years later and the person playing it can't remember, but you go to somebody else. You know, somebody else told me that same thing, Dan Smith. He was like, yeah, there's a hand from like 10 years ago that I might want to bring on, but I can't remember what I had but I can ask my friend and he'll know for sure because I told him the hand history. Can you guess who it is?
0: He told his friend from 10, year, 10 years ago and he would know who it is. Um, um, Lucky Chewy?
1: Yes, you got it. Bingo. That's right. Like you said, if I ask, but if I ask Lucky Chewy, he'll know for sure. And, and, and again, he was like, yeah, this is what I had so um, i think I think that's funny that you know there's so many great players, not everybody's memory is the same. no 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 that's funny,
0: so do you have in mind, okay, if you had Ivy um, I can't really think of what hand I would have him on in the grid uh, Oh, you know which hand it would be it would be that Jackson hand from from Monaco um, that would be the hand, but I forgot which hand it was. do you know which one know I'm talking about it was. I th- I think The, the ultimate like leveling hand where, um, it was from way back, like maybe Oh five. And it was a, it was in Monaco and it was against a British pro. His last name is Jackson, but I never met him. I don't really know him. And they, they got into a leveling war and it was very similar in a way to that hand between uh with with Aussie Matt where there was a they got into the leveling situation with Robo and Robo just said f it I'm all in like that like like where it's just it's a most insane leveling situation and it was it was a particularly funny one because I don't think your poker experience overlapped with the height of two plus two but back in the Back in the mid two thousands, two plus two was the place. Everyone loved the two plus two forums, right? And you'd have these sort of star posters that would have um, that would post a lot of hands and comment on everyone else's hands, and it was it was a fun time in poker, right? And one of one of the guys that was a star poster was this guy Yeti, and he had um, the Yeti theorem, which was that a three bet on a paired board flop was always a bluff (laughs) and he would post all these, like this was back before game theory had fully infiltrated the game. So it was just like a lot of online poker was leveling wars and people would try to think through different things and learn about poker through these discussions on two plus two. And so the Yeti theorem was a three bet on a paired board was always uh, uh, on the flop was always a bluff. And so then it was like, okay, like if if we if if we believe you on this, if this is empirically true, like what's the best line as a counter? Do you just float or go all in or whatever? So so it was very funny because this Ivy hands, where Ivy clearly wasn't spending any time on the two plus two forum, but it was the Yeti theorem in action where this guy Jackson went for the three bet on the flop and Ivy just read based, whatever, didn't believe him. And I think it, it didn't end there. I don't remember the particulars of how exactly, I think it was like a F- IV five bet him on the flop or something, something ridiculous. Um, and, um, that's the hand. So I would try to find that hand.
1: Yes. Yes. And I do remember watching the hand and I just, uh, I just see now I just looked it up and uh, it's queen eight suited. So,
0: okay. Yes. has that has know that know. been taken
1: no it hasn't it hasn't okay. i did watch i did know about another hand that i was thinking of using for it because um well i have already had nick shulman on the grid but i'm thinking about having a couple of repeat casts. and there was a hand that he played in the fox wpt but i think you know if i can get in touch with Phil, oh, where he
0: bluffed on the turn where he uh went all in on the turn uh yeah i think that's with a, a lot of- with a it was a semi bluff on the turn right
1: you know, I think that's the one. I have it in my notes. Where he um, could have,
0: maybe he could have been dead. No, I, I remember that hand. Yeah, he went I all know it all was a bluff. Time.
1: I know it was a bluff. Yeah. I, I thought it was a bluff on the river, but I could be wrong. But the, the thing is, um, I, yeah, obviously it would be great to get Pelivy on the grid. I, you know, I should be, uh, I should be more aggressive about that stuff. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, it's always amazing to me yeah. on podcasts. The success rate for, for asking is shockingly high. Well, um, especially
1: so during, this well, time, during this
0: time, right? right? What about uh, Negranu? Do you have a hand of choice for Negranu?
1: Oh, there's so many great picks for him. I haven't really picked one out yet. But yeah, I would definitely like to get him on as well. Um, especially when – he's just a great interview. I mean, he's so talkative. You haven't had him on your pod yet, have you? No. Yeah, but he's like he's, – he's just very talkative. I mean, obviously, I don't agree with all of the things that he posts. Like, sometimes – He seems like he's really out there. Um, But overall, he's just not never boring, right? So that's, that's, that's exactly what you want from a podcast. Yeah, like, one of the things I've learned most from interviewing people in podcasts, because I have two now I have my women's chess podcast, which is just like really important to me to get more women represented in games. Um, And then I also have the grid. And I feel like, the biggest thing for me is finding something that the guest gets really excited about and gives you, you know, good material from. And sometimes you have to like poke around for that. Cause like some people aren't really interested in talking that much about poker strategy or theory. So then if that happens, I try to move on from the hand within like five or 10 minutes and find something else that'll like light them up. And then some people, it's like, all we do is talk about the hand, like Joe McKean, like, or Sam Greenwood, like, you know, the people who are super, super passionate about the poker and the theory, like I go in that direction. And if not, I try to find out what that, what that other thing is. Uh, because there's always something that people are dying to talk about. And it's not always easy to just find out by asking them directly.
0: What about uh, Helmuth? Do you, do you have a Helmuth hand?
1: No. What do you think I should have for him? <sighs> There's a million great ones. Right. Although I have to say, like, I think he, he is actually somebody I should ask soon because I feel like he fits in that category as somebody who's usually extremely busy, but isn't traveling right now. So, you know, is was happy to like, you know, do stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, you'll get him on.
1: Oh yeah. 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 He loves, he loves love doing them. interviews. Yeah.
0: Just say, I love the way you played this hand. This was the most unbelievable hands. No one's ever played it better. Will you come on and yeah. talk about it?
1: <laughs>
0: and Antonio actually uh, likes seven deuce. Um, you know, he plays, I guess you don't want to talk about it in the context of like seven deuce props, but.
1: Oh, I don't mind. I don't mind. Although I did have Maria Kanakova on to talk about seven deuce. And I saw she was okay. on your podcast as well. Um, she's a, uh, yeah, she's great. And I just love the way that she um, articulates the, um, the poker the benefits of poker and you know to becoming a better person or you know just a better thinker she's just so good at that and um the seven deuce hand she talked about the way she talked about it i thought was really powerful even to somebody who doesn't play poker And yeah, that's what we really want to you know get people excited about the game um or at least see that they can learn things from the game
0: yeah, little little did I know when I interviewed her which was about 3 weeks before the book came out that the book would blow up in the way that it did. That was that was spectacular.
1: Oh, you yeah, you know, I I heard um your interview. I didn't realize it was right before the book came out.
0: Well, it was um, actually I think we did it a full m- month or even even like 6 weeks before the book came out and then they had a a, a PR schedule so we we held it. I held it.
1: Oh, right, 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 right. Cool. That makes sense. So that people could actually buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really good with interviews and in that she's always coming up with like different things to say in all the different interviews despite doing so many of them. Um, that's a really good skill
0: to have. You should um, you should have on uh, Peter Olsen because he. I don't really know him. I've met him a, a couple of times. Um, I met him through... Um, Oh yeah.
1: Right. He just wrote a book. Yeah. And he was just on Brian Koppelman's podcast.
0: That one. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I met him because I'm good friends with uh, the writer, Michael Lewis's editor um, who's good friends with him. And I met him a couple of times with, with her and he's, he's great. Like I was a big fan of him before I met him because I, I thought that confessions of an Ivy league, Bookie was a good, a great book. Um, and I also thought his book on Stu Unger was amazing. Um, so I was a big fan before before I met him. But then I didn't know he had a book out on poker and I happened to be listening to the Koppelman podcast and I ordered the book straight away and uh, I read it. It's called The Only Way to Play It. And I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good.
1: Well, so oh, said- I read almost every poker related book. I just I just like to gobble them up. Because I feel like poker is like not as, so I'm going to definitely get it after this interview. I just feel like poker, I've always loved books. I studied literature at NYU. I don't read as much as I'd like to now because, you know, online all the time. But I just feel that in chess and literature, there's been so many years of exploration and so many beautiful books. And poker, I always feel like there's not quite as many as I'd like. So it's always nice to read the ones that are out there. Because I guess in poker, like there's other forms that are, easier for delivering content like video or podcast or forums, you know, there's all these different like ways that are also easier to monetize because of in, information. So valuable, you know, you don't like give, give a books away for a hundred bucks. Right. I mean, you don't charge a hundred bucks for a book. So usually like a lot of poker information is gravitating in those directions. And I, um, I know that a lot of these books we are talking about like Maria's and the one you just mentioned, um, what, what is it called again?
0: The only way to play it.
1: They're not necessarily like deeply um, intensive strategy books, but still even that kind of like interweaving between like poker and story, I find um, so wonderful. And I just like want to read like whoever uh, takes the time to create that, you know, from the, from the high end books that are going to sell like, you know, tons of copies like Maria's to, you know, really just, uh, any person's perspective. I mean, you obviously have limited time, so I can't read them all. But usually, I'm I'm out there looking for them.
0: Well, you can check out my poker novel from 2005, "Broke a Poker hey. Novel."
1: Yeah, I didn't know that you were one. Wow! Oh,
0: yeah. It was really popular back in the day. It sold like I don't know, six thousand, seven thousand copies back in the day. Um, it was uh, it was fun. I wrote it like quickly in a few months, but I I uh, I had a good time with it. Um, and yeah, like my favorites are my own biased as that is. And, and, uh, then I really like shut up and deal Jesse Mays. I think that one in some ways is the best, even though it's not a traditional novel. It's the style is very unusual, but I think it's, uh, it's just right. And that for its time, it was pretty amazing. And then, um, and then I think that that Peter's book is is one of the best. I would say it's top two with Shut Up and Deal. All right. And and right. the the interesting thing is I don't really relate to his poker scenes because he's just and mine my poker novel wasn't autobiographical. It was like I was just taking interesting things that were happening happening around the world that I read about in Two Plus Two and heard about from friends and like just fictionalized them and put it together in a story. Um, but Peter's book, I didn't, I wouldn't have guessed that it was autobiographical, but then when you listen to the podcast with Brian Koppelman, it's clear that it's somewhat autobiographical. And I think the way that he writes about poker hands is a bit foreign to me because it's a bit emotion laden, whereas that's just not the way that that I've ever interacted with poker.
1: Read it now. I love. I love uh, that emotion and gameplay and inter- are intersecting. I'm really excited to read it. I also like Victoria Corrin's book, um, which is, the name is escaping me at the moment, but she is obviously great and has had like a fascinating life. So
0: I will. I will read that one now. That's nonfiction.
1: It is nonfiction. It's. It's. It's been a while. You know, it was back when she played poker more regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's a great writer. So,
0: so what I think is great about Peter's book is that he like absolutely nails two things. One is the difficulty of relationships and, and poker. Like he covers that territory better than, better than anyone ever. I think that his writing about relationships, it it generalizes beyond his particular situation because I've been around poker for a long time and I recognize at this point that there is a poker personality. Even though um, poker has sort of changed forms from the more gunslinging environment of the early mid-2000s to now the more nerdy game theoretic, analytical study at the computer approach, it, it doesn't matter. It's still the same personality that's involved. And the great thing about the poker literature, including the nonfiction books is that the best of these, uh, like Alvarez's book and, and Tony Holden's big deal. Like they really nail this character. Right. And there's, there's an amazing scene in Anthony Holden's big deal where it's, it's an early chapter where he's explaining his, his home game. Okay. And, and basically the, the book is he has success in his home game and he decides he's going to go out on the poker tour and like be a professional and write about it. Um, He's explaining his home game and he says, well, it's a fascinating group of characters. We have, we have famous writers and famous agents and playwrights and, it's a fascinating group of characters and the the only thing that binds them all together is that whenever any of them has any commitments they seek to extricate themselves with the greatest possible speed. And I mean it's devastating but it's true about the poker personality. And and so uh Peter he he describes the, the relationship tensions for this poker personality in a, in a way that I haven't seen done before but it's perfectly accurate he also um he also explains the environment of say 2010 2011 poker in a in a very very accurate way. And in particular, he's describing New York poker in 2010, 2011. And what's fascinating about his book is that it opens up with 10 pages from 2005, where the it's the poker boom era. And he's accurately describing 2005, but it's basically a carefree time where everything's going well for him, which you know, was true for a Decent bit of the poker community, um and then he fast forwards to 2010, and the rest of the book is 2010, 2011, and he describes that sort of dark cultural era and the poker environment that existed in in that dark era, absolutely perfectly.
1: That sounds amazing. I'm going to definitely check it out. You know, it's funny when people talk nostalgically about the poker boom because it's funny. My experience was so different. I only dabbled in poker back in those days, but rather than finding it, um, okay, maybe the game was, was, was not super difficult, but I actually found it very difficult to get like a foothold in a way into the subculture back then. Um, I think that, you know, now it's like easier in some ways for, it would be easier for some ways for me, somebody like me to fit in. I just really didn't feel like it was easy to make any friends or contact not having, well, first of all, I didn't really, I didn't really have a lot of money. And I didn't also like, uh, kind of jive with that, like, LA, LA type of atmosphere where it was like about how you look and who you know. Um, and I guess like all of those things combined, it, it, it just confused me a lot. Cause I, my two worlds at that point were like academia. And then also, even though I didn't do anything like beyond undergrad, I was like, kind of still interested in that world. Cause I also published a book, Chess Pitch which is about like women in, in the game. And then obviously the chess world, which was very like meritocracy, like how good are you at chess? Whereas like poker is this world where especially back then, it was a lot about like how much money you had and where you were where you were from and stuff. And I feel like now it's kind of shifted a little bit, that it is a little bit more chess-like. Obviously there's some superficial elements to it, but people are also interested in how well you think and like where your game is. So there, there are some benefits to like poker culture now. And I think it could be going in a really interesting direction. But yeah, I'm, I'm so interested in like reading his book. And I also wanted to say about like these popular poker books um, and like economics, because I know like that's your background as well, that you're in that as well. Um, I, I don't have a, a finance background, but obviously being in poker, I've learned some things over the years and, you know, made a lot of parallels and analogies about like risk aversion and women and also about like some of the things you learn from poker and some of them are not that obvious I think actually like I've given presentations before where I've talked about like non-obvious connections between you know poker and finance like for instance or negotiation more specifically like the fact that in poker sometimes you're playing um you're playing somebody with a um, in elastic ranges. So, you know, you tell your, your bet sizes accordingly. And I think that actually has like a lot of applications to real life negotiations. When you like, if you are pretty sure somebody is going to say yes to whatever you say, because they really want your services, you know, that could, you know, change your, your amount. Right. And, or whether they're, they're just like, they have this binary approach that they're not necessarily going to adjust it. Um, also this like unit bias in poker where like, if you bet a really specific amount, it can be interpreted really differently. So like, that's like a really classic poker tell, right? Where somebody bets like 3,200 into 5K instead of 3K, you know, I, on level one, that usually means it's very value heavy, right? Cause they pick this like very specific number. Like they want to figure out how much they can milk you for, but then like the different levels of that. And I, yeah, obviously that's something that comes into pricing theory as well. So, um, you know, what do you think of all that and in terms of like the overlap of poker and e- economics, who's doing the best job of showing us all of those applications?
0: I think the master is Aaron Brown, who you should get on your podcast.
1: Okay. Aaron Brown. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, Aaron wrote, uh, the poker face of wall street back in 2006, And, um, the way that we became acquainted was actually that I read a review of his book in the New York times and read it and liked it and wrote him. And then he read broke and liked it. And then, uh, we became friends and started going to dinners and stuff. Um, and he's, he's a fascinating guy. Like he, he's so well read. In the literature of poker, obviously you have guys like like Jim McManus, who maybe now is the most well read in the in terms of the poker literature. Um but if you want the specific the intersection of poker and and economics, it's Aaron Brown. Um he has he has another book called red blooded risk, which is about poker's application to risk management, especially it's really risk management in life, but, but especially like risk management in financial markets. And he's basically very well equipped to talk about these topics because he did have a period as a professional poker player. He's, he's, uh played poker his whole life. He understands poker very well. And then professionally, he had big time jobs. Like he was, I think the head risk manager at Morgan Stanley. And then he was the uh, chief risk officer at AQR, like a massive hedge fund. Um, He's had like big time risk management jobs. And he just, he draws the connections between poker and economics better than anyone, I think.
1: Oh, great. I would love to read that. And in your, in broke as well. I have so m- I have like four or five books I need to read after this podcast. Or that well, I broke is
0: very out. short. It's like, uh, I don't know, 130 pages or something. Cool. I want, and the style is like quick. I wanted to capture the short attention span style of, of poker. Um, yeah, so that, that nonfiction group of books, like I never thought there would be another book that that matched Positively Fifth Street in terms of sales figures. And, you know, sales figures in the book world are actually pretty hard to obtain. It's a, it, Other than for the author, it's actually really hard to obtain sales figures, partially because no one has any incentive to let the world know how... F- few books are actually purchased and like read it's just, it's the number, the sales figures are dismal even for books that we think are really popular. Um, but positively fifth street was a crossover hit. That was a, a genuine bestseller, uh, sold many, many copies.
1: When um, when you say like, at what point do you say genuine bestseller? Cause obviously- like
0: if you, if you break a hundred thousand copies, mm-hmm that's just so elite in the book world. It yeah. It's it's like books that get amazing amounts of attention in mainstream media, reviewed by the New York Times, like 100 plus Amazon reviews, just all over the radar of people you follow on Twitter and stuff like that. Like there are a lot of books that are in that category and sell 20,000, 30,000 copies. Um, just... To cross a hundred thousand copies is it's massive in the book world. It's very rare.
1: And that's when the author is starting to get money beyond their royalties. So that's also important, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically the nature of the book world is that in both nonfiction and and fiction, you have your big time bestsellers. So in nonfiction it would be like a Malcolm Gladwell or a Michael Lewis, and they sell a couple million copies. And then you, and then you have everyone else who's like ten thousand is actually pretty good. Um, so when I say crossover, it's like I would be guessing in McManus's case, but well over a hundred thousand, well well over a hundred thousand. I, I don't know how to pin it exactly, but but it was. I didn't think that the potential existed for another poker, nonfiction book to be a crossover hit. And Maria's book was a crossover hit. And again, I, I don't know her sales figures, but I can, I can just see that it was a crossover hit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I saw it in most, uh, mainstream media venues. Um, yeah, definitely. And what about Annie's? Cause Annie seemed to do really well too.
0: Yeah, that one. Um, but
1: maybe that one was more like the corporate talk kind of direction not like the selling as many copies. I'm not, I'm not sure, but
0: yeah, I think, I think that's right. But that one, um, yeah, that one wasn't a crossover hit exactly, but within the, what it's trying to do, which is, it was probably more successful than, than it could ever have been expected because what it's trying to do is define the person as an expert and then, and then set up like speaking engagements and and expertise in that area on an ongoing basis. And um, it was more successful than could have ever been hoped for that objective. But I haven't read it. I can't evaluate the quality. I haven't read it. Like for me personally, I think like I have respect for Annie. It's nothing against Annie, but I think like, what can she tell me that Aaron Brown hasn't already told me? And that that might be naive, but like that's just the way that I think about it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I know people are, you know, have a lot of reasons to, um, you know, uh, dislike her in the poker world. I did read the book, and I thought it was well done. I was I was impressed actually, um, just on the, the merits of the book itself. Um, but that I, I, at the same time, I understood people who were involved in some of the companies that you know, hurt livelihoods. I totally understand their point of view of not supporting it. But that said, I think those people would be surprised at how at how actually well, well thought out and well structured and, and good it was. You know, because there, there's like that, uh, that feeling that if somebody, if somebody did something wrong to you in your, your industry, you're like, well, they're probably not just very good at the stuff they're doing. And that's definitely not the case with her.
0: No, that's, I have no bias with regard to, with regard to Annie. I like Annie. It's not, it's not that. It's, it's just that, that material yeah, for me is so well trodden that to invest in reading a book is not, not something for me.
1: And absolutely. Uh, I totally understand it. It's like, it's like anything, you know, this is more geared towards people who haven't thought deeply about poker and economics, right? Not, not about somebody who already has um, you know mastered those areas in their life. Um, I still sometimes like reading books like that, like in chess. Um, I'm trying to think of, of the best like mainstream chess books besides obviously searching for Bobby. Well, Fisher. well, since
0: since I did just watch Searching for Bobby Fisher um, with my son Bear, it was it was funny because the the main character teaching wise in that book is is Bruce Pandolfini, who at the time that that I was learning chess if you went into a Barnes and Noble it would be uh Bruce Pandolfini's books like Bruce Pandolfini teaches chess tactics and he he's, it would be his books that were popular for the beginning poker player I mean beginning chess player
1: yes 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 I remember that as well I remember that phase like opening traps and that. Um, but yeah, I mainstream chess books, um, Searching for Bobby Fischer is fantastic. There's a King's Gambit by an uh, old friend of mine, Paul Hoffman, um, who now is like the director of the Liberty Science Center. That's really good. I mean, I'm in it, so I'm a little biased. Um, and there's a lot of Bobby Fischer books. And I imagine there will be more now that you know, chess is experiencing such a resurgence.
0: So that's true that chess is experiencing a resurgence. And it, is it oh, because yeah. of the oh, the, the Twitch world?
1: Yeah, it's the Twitch world. People are just getting like really major sponsorships, you know, for, you know, playing chess online. Um, some of them are like, you know, it seems like there's, it's a very interesting model. Like, I don't know a lot about it because I'm not like an agent or a manager and I t- stream like more recreationally. I don't stream like, you know, on an c- extremely regular basis. But um, I... I think that you see a lot of major esports signing chess players. You also see um, even big companies like Bounty and Tide um, sponsoring like single streams. So they'll say like this stream is sponsored by Bounty. And the top chess players are just getting those like huge name companies. Maurice Ashley recently um, had an ad campaign with Hennessy.
0: Wow. Um, Wouldn't seem to be on brand for a chess player, but... I guess so.
1: But uh, that, that said, I think actually the Hennessy thing originated before the chess boom. Although literally chess is booming for a long time. It's just been very gradual. I'd say for like tw- 15 years, it's been like an upward crawl. It's been on, the, um, been on the upswing. But there's just been like a really like more accelerated growth um, in the last six months, at least on online chess and Twitch.
0: In chess, one thing that's a theme in the movie, again, the movie is fresh in my mind, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Um, the young weightskin character is actually... Uh, he's being discouraged early on from playing chess. He's taken to a chess tournament and, like, look at all these people. They're all like, stressed out, out of their minds. So he's, he's d- discouraged, and I wonder... Um, you have this uh, this world where on the one side it's very intellectually taxing and it's mainly about really deep, deep intellect. And then there's also this stress. Like you're playing under the clock all the time. You're playing with people watching you, tournaments. It's like you've got the stress chemicals going. Um, so you've got to like protect your mind in the face of all of this stress. And there's some parallel to poker there because we play this intricate game, like we have we have to think deeply about it, and yet um, there are stressful situations that come up, and you have to maintain the integrity of your thinking process under extreme stress. And you and then as an aging poker player, I'm 42 this year. You have to like then age through that process, right? Like still be good at making decisions under stress, whatever. 50 years old, stuff like that. Um, do you see parallels of like the, the thinking hard, but having to think under extreme stress?
1: Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's harder in chess because there's so much intensity. Um, and it's always your move or about to be your move. Um, but on on the other hand, poker is more hours, right? So it's not like chess sessions would be maybe four or five hours a day. Um, poker sessions are usually much longer, right? or at least a little bit longer if if for tournament they certainly are yeah tournaments are really designed in a way that is really better for people who are well prepared but don't exert a lot of energy over the table and they're very young so I I think there's just like two different types like some people like really want to like partially solve things at the table I think poker is better for people who are like relaxed and just try to execute what they already have like you know what they've already like kind of brought to the table and then, you know, use some like light libraries. I think that's a better way, but like that's not my tendency. My tendency is just to, like try, try to take what I know and then like continue to figure things out. And it, it's actually really difficult. I mean I, 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 I mean, I get extremely exhausted. You can't possibly do that all day. It's just impossible. So you have to like pick your spots, like when you're going to exert yourself. And, you know, it's hard when you like to think, because if you like thinking, you just kind of like can't help yourself. You're like, okay, I'm gonna keep thinking about this thing, but then you're burnt out by the end of the day. It's it's pretty tricky.
0: Yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't imagine how exhausting a chess tournament is, but certainly a long poker session or a, a poker tournament is is exhausting. Yeah, so, I never
1: thought about it that way. Like that, you are you have to shut your brain off. Like it's like a. And that's difficult for some people. It's like, here's this really interesting problem, but don't think about it because it's not even your hand. And if you think too much about it, you're going to be exhausted by the end of the day. That's like a very like difficult temptation for people who like to think.
0: Yeah. So last uh, last question for you, since I've taken almost an hour and a half of your time. Um, so with regard to uh, kids in chess, obviously it's a... I, a great thing for kids in this environment because you do have the screen, screen addiction, the screen temptations that are going to be every future parents struggle, right? And, and you have chess, which is really a long attention span activity. I would think that the ideal thing for kids is to get them playing chess in the traditional way where they're playing long games on a board, not on a screen. Um, And get them get them with this deep thinking long attention span activity um what what do you think is a good development path for a for a child in chess
1: that's a great question because i have a almost four-year-old right now so i'm kind of like grappling with that most of my students are a little older so it's like you know I, i i run this women's program to help girls in chess but um i think it's really tricky because it's like they learn really quickly on screens but then there's a problem that it can reinforce bad habits and that it's not always easy to translate to real life and that they you, that they get the impression that chess is like a video game not a board game so i i'm i'm undecided on that i think that it depends on the kid but that yes absolutely if you can get them interested in the actual physical chessboarding and pieces you know that's that's beautiful, that's what we want. Because the um, the challenge I think is, as educators and parents is, um, you know, instilling in people the beauty and the, the passion of like thinking hard and everything comes kind of easy when you're doing it on a screen. Like you can, if you don't know how the night moves, if you put your finger in the night, it shows you all the squares it moves to, great. But for a very young child, is that an educational experience? Or is that an experience that will just make them go to the regular board and be like, oh, cool, now I can move it wherever I want. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so,
1: so yeah, yeah I, I'm not totally sure actually. I think that ideally the, the parent like uses both and places limits on the screen so that they're sure to be able to translate it, right? Rather than like overdoing the screen so that it becomes like almost like a video game. I wish I knew all the answers to it, but I will say I'm not like a doomsday dystopian person when it comes to like social media and technology. Like I think that um, the kids the kids today are just, you know, so intelligent and so good at, you know, using the technology to like learn quickly and efficiently. Um, so, and you look at, even if you look at stuff like poker and chess, you see the acceleration of growth and the mastery that people achieve at younger ages. So it, it, it's also like factually oriented. If screens were making everyone stupid, then why would all these chess players who literally almost never crack open a book and almost always just study using online tools, why are they getting better so much more quickly? Like, I don't think the data is there to show that it's like this horrible thing for intellect, but it definitely has to be moderated. And at some point, usually people hit a plateau using screen-based learning tools and they need to like scale back a little bit and also make sure that they're training themselves to think hard. So kind of getting the advantages of online learning because it's very efficient and you have the world at your fingertips, but then also making sure you're applying like your actual brain.
0: Now, can you start with Blitz chess and then go to long form chess? It would seem like you'd have to start from the long form chess and then go to fast chess.
1: I mean, usually kids, I feel like when they're playing games on the internet with chess, it's usually like, it's especially young, younger kids, like our kids' ages, I think it's more more often that they're not necessarily always playing other people. They're playing like some online app game where they're like testing their puzzles and getting like, like bonuses when they get things right. So a lot of times at that age, it's like more puzzle oriented. Like, can you play this game? You know, can you play this big dinosaur with like two extra rooks? You know it's like that kind of thing at like the like three to seven year old age range and then i think they start you know maybe signing up to accounts where they play other people um at least that's what like my general sense is like i don't normally like teach kids of that age except for my own son but um it seems that at that age it's a lot of like learning how things work not just like playing other people
0: well that's fun that you've already started with him
1: yeah! Oh, yeah! Yeah, the kids love kids they- love chats because it's like little toys, right? I think he likes puzzles and games. He does. I do think he enjoys that. Um, but it, it, I think it'll like you said, it's gonna. It'll the challenge will be like honestly, we were gonna start him on screens at four, or maybe even five. But with the pandemic, we bumped it up, you know, because no school. Right, like gotta like we we gotta use every like fun and educational tool at our disposal, you know,
0: yeah, it is it is a challenging time, no doubt, fortunately, bear is is at real school now, so
1: oh, that's great, that's
0: great, well, I really enjoyed this, so happy you you came on,
1: yeah, you're welcome, thank you so much for inviting me, and um, yeah, I hope we get to meet again soon in an actual poker tournament,
0: yeah, and I look forward to doing the grid. you just let me know when
1: I will, hello, I will thanks, thanks again. again.
0: All right, I'll chat with you soon.